Hi guys, welcome back. My name is Sander Deer and you're listening to the 16th episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter and make sure that you're up to date with the latest information when it comes to speakers, new podcasts, giveaways, you name it. Today we'll be talking about one of those topics that can really bite you in the ass if you don't pay attention to it. Technical debt. And what is it? What's the difference with, for instance, undone work? How do you visualize this? Do you make this transparent in your backlog? Do you create a different Kanban board for this? And to discuss this, we have someone who, even though he's currently a professional series manager and professional scrum trainer at scrum.org, he's still a developer at heart. He taught himself how to code at an early age and has spent his years turning ideas into functioning software. So he's earned his mark, he knows what he's talking about, he's been in the trenches. I know him as a really colorful speaker who has an intense passion for technical depth and Kanban and these kind of things. Steve Porter. Steve, thank you for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. This is really great. You're welcome. Hey, something that I want to talk about today is tech depth and undone work. Now, just to go from from off the bat, could you define tech depth in a single sentence? It's the either conscious or unconscious decisions that are made that have an impact on quality and the there's an and in there so it counts as a single sentence um and the piece that i would i always like to add to that is it's uh the quality decisions aren't uh impacted as strongly at the moment as they are in the future all right sounds good but you mentioned code based or not could do you have any human form of tech debt like is someone lacking skill is that or hiring um, someone that doesn't necessarily have the right poten- knowledge? Uh, potentially, it could be a, a lack of skill. Uh, when I'm my my background's in software development, and I'm always looking for opportunity to talk about tech debt um, outside of that realm. As more and more people start to use the Scrum framework and start to understand some of the challenges of dealing with complexity, I like to use those examples. But my backgrounds in software development. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of stick there. And for me, the, the examples, uh, for, for lack of skills is, uh, performance testing and, and, uh, tuning an application for performance to make sure that when you launch an application, if it, if you end up with hundreds of thousands of users, that those hundreds of thousands of users are all going to have, uh, an excellent experience using your application. Uh, uh, anybody here who has an engineering background or, has, or even worked with with applications know that as you add more and more people onto it, you run the risk of the performance degrading over time. So um, uh, an organization might uh, release a product, works great, um, and then it becomes really popular and the user base goes up by a factor of 10, which isn't that uncommon. And suddenly everything goes to hell in a handbasket um, because the the people who were building the application were engineering the application didn't may not have had the skill to be able to handle that many users. 
So that's a, that's an example for me of where a skill might be lacking. Um, the, the challenging thing with technical debt for me is it's not always skill. It might've been a, they might've actually had the skill to be able to deal with that, but it was a conscious decision that the team made. It's like, Hey, we're just getting started being able to handle millions of users and something we need to worry about right off the bat. So we can defer that decision because we want to get something out to the marketplace today. We want to get some feedback from a relatively small user base. So let's put something out there. Let's get some feedback, which I, I really encourage people to do. You want that feedback. You want to provide value to your customers and then have them, or at least try to provide value to your customers. And then they're going to use it and they're going to let you know whether it was good or not. The sooner you can do that, the better. Um, however, unexpected things can happen. You might um, think you're starting off small, provide a, a product to a relatively small user base, seeing, trying to find out whether they find it valuable or not. And you might uh, find that it provides a ton of value, so much so that your user base isn't a handful of people. It's hundreds of thousands of people. But you made that decision. It's like, hey, I want to get this fast feedback from people. So let me put it out there. It can handle millions of users, but I'm not expecting millions of users, but I want to get that fast feedback. For me, that's a classic example of technical debt, right? You're making a decision. Hey, we can't handle millions of users, um, but we don't think we need to. We want to get rapid feedback from our customers. So let's put something out there. Um, your product, the thing that you're testing in the marketplace might not be successful. The value that you thought you're providing might not be as good as you thought. You end up with no users. Um, or it might be what you thought you were going to get. So you end up with 20 or 30 users and everything everything goes as expected. And you can slowly work on your application to provide more value to get more users. But you're getting that feedback. Um, and that decision that you made that, well, you know, we could build this to handle millions of users. We don't think we're going to, but so we'll start small that if you end up with no users or a very small number of users, that decision you made was a smart decision. It was a good decision. Um, the work that you would have done to make it robust, um, if you end up with no users, all that work is waste. And it might slow you down from actually finding out that no one likes your app. So that that conscious decision, like, this is good enough for now, let's go, um, sometimes is the best thing you can do when you're when you're dealing with unknown the challenge happens for organizations. Uh, I, I, there's two challenges. One is that decision that you've made to get feedback fast. Um, you'll eventually, you may eventually have to put in that work to deal with the millions of users. The longer you wait to pay off that debt, the longer that you wait to um, backfill those decisions that you made the more risk that you have, the example I was using, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're not going to get millions of users. We're only going to get 20 or 30. Put it out there. You get 20 or 30. Great. Add some more features, get some more users, add some more features, get some more users. Um, then you add that magical feature that suddenly it explodes and you've got a million users. Now what do you do? It's like, oh, I've just pissed. I, I, I just pissed off a whole bunch of like millions of potentially new customers because I didn't take that into account. Where Whereas if you had been maybe addressing that earlier decision as you went along, as you got more and more things, then you could have more gracefully handled that explosion that you were getting. So trying to decide what the right moment to pay that debt back 
is is a risk is something that organizations need to figure out because you don't want to pay it off too early because again it may never happen but at the same time the longer you wait the more risk you're taking of course you're also taking the risk that that decision you're making around not making it scalable maybe there's other decisions you're making along the way that's going to make scalability difficult so you end up you end up not only paying the debt back but you end up paying back more because there's all these other decisions you made along the way so that's the one area that um people who are working with technical debt need to consider the other one and i think this is one that's probably more common um, people confuse technical debt with just crappy stuff and you say technical re- debt is crap as well um uh potentially um it's crap is such a hard word is such a harsh word um you're making a decision i value fast feedback over doing it in such a way that's going to be extensible in the future and sometimes the fast feedback is worth it. Um, there, there, you may find in the future sometimes the fast feedback isn't. Um, but there is, I, I think there is a, you can make a clear difference between I'm doing this so I can get fast feedback or I'm just putting out crap. Um, a, a good example of where you might know the difference between the two is if you put something out there to get fast feedback and the feedback that you get is this is crap. All right. <laughs> The decision you made to get fast feedback isn't probably the, isn't probably the right decision because instead of focusing on the feedback you were looking to get about is this feature good, is this a good product, instead you're getting the feedback about the quality decision that you made. So the feedback that you're getting isn't the feedback you want, there isn't value on the feedback. So that's, that's one piece to think about. And the other uh, the thing people should look for is making quality decisions that don't necessarily get you faster feedback. They just make your life easier. And you kind of, the term I use in North America is kick the can down the road. Uh, and that's one of the examples I use. I, I shot a video for this where you make a decision to defer some quality portion. The example that I think I use is, you know, before we release this product to the public, we have to make sure that legal reviews all our third-party licenses to make sure that none of the third-party licenses are going to get us into trouble. Um, and that's a quality thing. Uh, I talked a little bit. More, I talked earlier about performance and those items, but security testing your application, compliance—that's that's quality. Um, and you can defer those decisions. Uh, that is the one thing that product owners often do is they want everything today. They can't get everything today. They have to make decisions about what they get today and what they defer. And I always caution uh, product people, the people make decisions about where they spend their time. Um, be careful when you defer things that are going to stop you from getting feedback from real customers. So in my example of uh, deferring the check with legal, I, I'm, I'm, I am getting some feedback as I build things, right? I, the feedback I'm getting is usually internal from my team is whether I can actually build something or not. But getting the feedback from actual end user, actual customers in an actual environment, that's the most valuable feedback you can possibly get. And if you're deferring work that stops you from getting that actual feedback from actual customers in an actual environment and and calling that technical debt it's like oh yeah we haven't done this yet that's just we're just technical debt we're going to pay off then you're you are 
exchanging quality and you're not exchanging it for getting faster feedback. You're just exchanging it for expediency so I can build more stuff, potentially build more stuff on, on, on some really bad decisions that you've made. And the worst thing you could, the worst state you could possibly be in is you defer these really important decisions, these things that are stopping you from getting real feedback from real customers in a real environment. You're deferring this decision so you can keep building and defer, build, defer, build. You could find yourself where, all right, we're ready to go now. And then you go to backfill all of these deferred decisions and you find out you're totally, pardon the bad language, you're totally screwed. You can't get feedback because that thing that you deferred from weeks ago, months ago, was actually stopping you from getting that real good, honest feedback you're going to get from users. So it's those, it's those couple of things that I want product owners to think about. Like is, um, you know, am I, am I making a decision that is worth the delaying the feedback or, or am I making decisions that's going to stop me from getting feedback at all? That was a long answer, man. That was like what fifteen minutes of me ranting. You can tell I'm a, I'm a trainer and love the sound of my own voice. You're absolutely so. passionate about the topic, and that's what I really appreciate about you. No? Yeah. You mentioned deferring from some things, but when you mention third party and these kind of things, what pops to mind with me is, for instance, compliance as well, and potentially even local laws. But it's hard to get this on your radar. Like, and what would you advise? teams or people working with this to still be able to think of these kind of things um <clears throat> yes you're it you're right it is hard to get it on the radar um excuse me <clears throat> you're right it is hard to get it on your radar the very first thing i would encourage teams to do organizations to do is try to identify those areas that are tough and make them as transparent as possible um This is one of the great things that I like about Scrum, this idea of a definition of done. It's like, here's the stuff that we're going to do every sprint. And it's very, very clear. Um, and if there are things that, that you need that you can't do, those need to be captured. And everyone, your, all your stakeholders, your customers, the your management team everyone needs to be aware of hey here's the things that we need to do before we can release that we can't currently do inside of our sprint make them transparent and then start thinking about what can we do to alleviate them don't just throw up your hands shrug your shoulders like ah we can't do anything about this um realize the pain that that's giving you And then start coming up with a plan to say, okay, what can we do? What can we, what can we do to move that work? Whether it be compliance, whether it be additional testing, whatever the case may be, what can we do to move that inside of our sprint so that we have some control over and treat the work of bringing that inside the sprint is, is I'm going to say mission critical work because it's, the delays in the release that are going to cost you your ability to be agile. So it is mission critical. It absolutely has to be done. And I'm always pleasantly surprised when I talk to organizations who, who have had these challenges and then have dealt with them, the sort of solutions they come up with. It's, it's really gratifying that when you challenge people, 
that they come up with good solutions. Um, one of the easiest ones for me that it's funny, I've, until it was kind of described to me in practice, I hadn't really thought of it. Um, it was a, I'm trying to remember, it was, uh, it was a compliance issue. It was either FDA or it was, it was a, a government board, government compliance, where they were living under the, the team was living under this understanding that, well, we have to wait for FDA approval. We, we can't go forward until we get this. Um, the, the product owner was unhappy with the delay. So he, I almost feel bad. He's like, he didn't take his team's word for it. He didn't take his organization's word for it, that this was an actual constraint. He said, you know, I'm going to go get an expert in this. I'm going to reach outside of organization. I'm going to, I can't remember whether they, whether they actually reach out to somebody who worked at the FDA or reached out to a consultant who had a lot of experience working with the FDA, brought them in and had that person explain what the actual regulations are. And when they explained what the actual regulations were to this team who had a lot of assumptions about the constraints that they had, when they actually explained, it's like, no, you're making a lot of assumptions that aren't true. Here's what, here's the actual thing. Here's what they'll accept. The team went, really? They'll accept that? It's like, absolutely, they'll accept that. So the things that you're worried that have to be deferred, there are ways around that to make them happy and still allow yourself to be agile. So just because someone in the past has said you can't do this, doesn't mean you can't do this. Absolutely. Always be challenging. It takes a little bit of courage. Now, I can also imagine that when you're bringing someone external to your company, to your team, to whatever, uh, that's not necessarily part of the development process, it could hurt the level of trust. What's your experience with that? Um, Yes, absolutely. Hopefully, um, it's uh, that looking for outside help, bringing in additional help is a pull, not a push, right? This is hopefully the team deciding that, hey, we need some help here. Let's go look for some help. And as soon as it becomes a pull and it becomes by invitation, that, that helps with the risk of damaging trust. Um, having a trusting environment is really important. Um, acknowledging to all the people who work on your product, it's like, hey, what we're doing is hard. And there are a lot of unknowns and, and we might make mistakes as we go along and that's okay. We'll fix them. So by going and eliciting outside help, if you create the right environment, shouldn't feel like they failed somehow or that they're, that somehow means they're bad. It's like, no, this is good. Go and get outside help. The other piece I would add to that is when you are bringing people in, make sure they have the right mindset, right? Make sure they have that um, mentoring and coaching mindset so that they realize their job there isn't to, uh, you know, their job is to help transfer knowledge. Who would you recommend to to have that process of um, hiring people in their interviews? Who who does that? Who's responsible for that? Is that HR? Is that the manager? Is that the team? How does that work uh, according to you? I would, I would really hope that if a team is looking for outside expertise, that they're heavily involved in sourcing that outside expertise. As soon as you go to some other entity to do that work for you, you run the risk of there being a disconnect between what you need and what you get. Um, And this is a good reminder for teams out there 
looking for outside help, figuring out the qualifications, potentially doing the interviewing, all that sort of thing. That's work on the product. That is no different than writing, and I'll use an engineering background, writing code or testing code or talking to customers. This is work on the product. And as a product owner, hopefully you see the value of this. And when your team is out doing this and not doing the more traditional product activities of writing code, testing code, those sort of things, you still see it as work and still see it as value. Because if if you don't, then you do run the risk of the team not taking ownership of it. They pass it off to somebody else. And then you run that risk of that disconnect. Thanks for that. It would be great advice. And now going back to uh, technical debt itself and advocating the devil here, I'm re- relatively new to the term. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm p- part of a, of a scrum team um, that hasn't been paying too much attention to technical debt or undone work or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. How can we make this quantifiable? How can we make technical debt more tangible so that we can work with it? Um, definitely having conversations with the entire scrum team around the decisions that you're making and identifying areas where you may have potential, you, you may be taking on debt that you'll, that you'll potentially have to pay into the future or have to pay off in the future. Um, uh, make sure the conversations happen and where possible, transparently capture those discussions. And if you can capture the future work, it's going to be an estimate. It's going to be a forecast. Any Anything to do with future work is always a forecast. So you don't know exactly what it's going to be, but at least capture it saying, hey, we have to do this sometime in the future. Make sure that gets captured in, in Scrum, captured in the product backlog. And then your product owner, along with the Scrum team, can manage that work in much the same way you would manage any other work. Work in the product backlog has value uh, and product owners need to decide whether this uh, paying back technical debt has more value than this new feature or fixing a defect or uh, working on any sort of maybe a compliance issue. They all just have value. And one of my favorite examples for this idea of value, um, I worked on a team that we had um, when the product was young and we had a whole bunch of configuration settings, the what we probably should have done is built a UI that the users could access to help manage the configurations, but building that UI had a cost. So instead we ended up just using a config file for it. And as users need to make changes, they opened up notepad, they made the changes, saved it again. Um, we didn't have a ton of configuration settings. We didn't have a ton of users. So that decision made sense. You can imagine as the product grew, we got more users, more stuff got stuffed into that, that configuration file. And we were spending more and more time dealing with support issues as people were trying to update these settings and they'd make a mistake and they'd screw up their entire environment and it became really bad. Um, I was a product owner for this and I had uh, the members of our development team who handled support. We didn't have a third-party support uh department, everything was internal. They would keep coming to me as the product owner during either sprint planning or during refinement saying, Steve, can we fix this? I really want to fix this. Like we need to build the UI around this. Like, and I kept saying, no, it's good enough. I mean, that's what I said at the beginning. So I would just keep saying that. No, it's good enough. I've got other things under other build. No, it's good enough. 
Um, and then one of the developers on my team got tired of me saying that, and he started tracking how many sport hours he would spend in a, in a sprint dealing with these configuration issues. And uh, during one of our conversations where he said, he'd really like to fix this. And I said, no, it's good enough. He told, told me how many hours, uh, in a average sprint he was spending and equated it. We were at this time using story points to, to try to size our items to, to fill up a sprint. And he equated the hours to story points because that was kind of the, the economy, the number that I was used to using. Um, and I remember the number shocking me. He's like, Steve, it's the equivalent of an eight port story. I spend every single week working on this. And I'm like, excuse me now. It's like, yeah, that's how much time I spend every sprint that just gets chewed up because of the decision that you keep making to defer this work every single sprint. This is what we spend. And I'm like, okay, hang on a second how much to fix this? And he's like, it's about an eight point story to fix it. So it's so like, okay, hang on a second. So you're telling me that you spend eight points, one sprint, and I get back eight points every single sprint going forward. And he's like, yeah, it's a forecast, but that's pretty much what we're thinking. You can imagine what my decision for the next sprint was. Would, yeah, go on. Sorry. I would say it, it, at that point it became a no brainer um, because we were tracking the work and it was able to get quantified. What was the value of the work that we're doing until this really smart dev was able to put it in such a way that as a product owner, I could appreciate the value of the work. I was able to make a good decision until that point. I didn't, I didn't understand the value of the work. So how to deal with it, track it, and do your best you can to put a value on it so that when you're making decisions, and it's always about making decisions, what to work on, right? You always want to work on the higher value things over the lower value things. So somehow put something on it so I can appreciate the value. And that helps you make decisions about how to tackle it in the future. So you do make this very transparent. Do you put this on the sprint backlog itself? Do you create a, a separate Kanban board for this? How do you do that? <laughs> um, if it's work for future sprints, the natural place for that is always the product backlog. Um, I'm always a little leery about putting too much into the product backlog. And I'm, you might have some of your listeners going, you're a scrum guy. What do you mean putting too much in the product backlog? Um, I always worry about the transparency of a product backlog. If it just becomes a dumping ground for all the things that, Hey, maybe someday sometime in the future we'll work on. Um, if it's, if it's something that really isn't top of mind for product owners, maybe there is a separate list you can put it on, um, to keep your product backlog really focused on the current product goal or work for the, the next handful of sprints. So where it goes isn't isn't as important as making sure wherever it goes it isn't forgotten product backlogs are really good they shouldn't be forgotten but there are other ways to handle that so that's that's kind of my first thought um and uh obviously if it is being worked on then of course it would it should make the sprint backlog having the sprint backlog accurately accurately represent the work of the team um, is always really great. And you talked about Kanban having a visualization of the work inside the sprint is a, is a practice that is near and dear to my heart that I recommend every team do. Um, whether you're, uh, whether you're a team doing scrum or whether you're a team working on work and using some other practices, other, some other framework. 
Yeah, my experience, especially with this remote working, where we are more heavily reliant on on tools like Jira when it comes to product backlog, is that it be- just becomes a swamp. Like if you have a sticky physical board, then you you instantly see it. You can't dodge it. Like it's there. Now with tools like Jira, it's less tangible. So what we did with our teams is have a rule of every six weeks or every once a month, we would go through the entire backlog. What's there? Do we still need it? If not, we would throw it out. Um, so I can definitely recommend that too. Now you mentioned that yeah. Kanban is very dear to your heart and you're <laughs> you're working with that too. What makes it so dear to your heart? Um, it's just such a great collection of ideas and practices that just make sense. Um, I've, I've been around the industry for a long period of time. Started off as a developer um, back in the day when a more defined process, the term that gets used is waterfall, where it was way back, I hate dating myself, way back before the Agile Manifesto. Um, and those were those were tough days as a software developer. They were really crappy. Um, lots of death marches, not a lot of interaction with users, not a lot of job satisfaction because you'd work on stuff for months and your users would never see it. Um, and I remember being introduced to, it started with XP, being introduced to XP, um, and from that being introduced to Scrum. And I remember when I first heard about those ideas, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. As soon as I started reading them, they're like, this is brilliant. Why has no one ever thought of this before? This just makes so much sense. Uh, and then, I won't say shortly after, but I'd, uh, after I became more familiar with XP and Scrum, I remember being introduced to this idea of Kanban. And it was a brand new term for me. I didn't have as much of a lean background back then as I, I, I did now. So my first introduction was uh, with Kanban was through the work that came out of Corbis, the with applying those thoughts to knowledge work. And I remember watching a presentation and just thinking, oh my God, this makes sense. This is such powerful, strong ideas. And one of the things that has, has, uh, I was going to say disappointed me. Maybe that's too strong a word, but I'll use it. One of the things that disappointed me is, well, Scrum has done so well as far as being the ideas being absorbed by people and they see the value and they start using them. It's done a really good job of penetrating. Um, I find Kanban hasn't quite had that same hasn't had that same moment where it penetrates quite as much. Do you think that has to do with roles, for instance, and accountabilities? Like they used to be mentioned as roles in in the Scrum Guide, which kind of gives it an easy, tangible way for people to pick it up. Yeah. I would, if, if, I'd love to know why it didn't take off in the same way that Scrum did. Like, I really don't. I wish I could solve that problem. And um, potentially, and this is a potential, um, Scrum had... uh, uh, a lot more people writing about it. There were some very definitive gu- books on it. And I was going to say the word guide, right? There's, if you want to know about Scrum, uh, just search it. You'll find a Scrum guide. Here's 17 pages, really simple. Go fill your boots, go do it. Um, up until relatively recently, if you wanted to learn about Kanban, it was a little bit harder to get any sort of definitive, here's what you need to know. It wasn't captured in quite the same way. And I think because it wasn't captured in quite the same way, it was just harder for people to pick up and they would 
people would find their own way, but because there was no definitive guide, often the way that they found their own way wasn't very valuable. The number of organizations that I would go into where they would say they're doing Kanban, and I'm like, awesome, I love Kanban. Show me what you've got. And they'd walk me over to a space where they had some stickies up on a wall. And I'm like, oh, so you're visualizing your work. Excellent. That's great. That's not Kanban. And you're missing some of the most important pieces to get the value from those from those ideas, from the strategy there, that just the visualization alone isn't going to get you there. And maybe that's why it hasn't taken off in quite the same way, because people only do bits and pieces of it. They don't appreciate how it all fits together in that way. And because of that, they're not getting the value. One of the things I'll say about Scrum and Ken and Jeff, the two people who who created Scrum, have done a pretty good job of saying, here's a collection of practices. We'll put it all on a guide for you. And these collections all work together. And if you leave some of them out, I don't want to say you're a bad person for leaving some of them out. There's no scrum police that are going to come kick down your door and say, no, you've got to do all of them. But they do put right in the guide saying, if you don't do all of these things, then you might get, the results might not be as good. And I don't think Kanban has done as good a job of saying you need to do, you you should be looking at doing all of these things to get the maximum benefit. Because if you do one or two or three of them, eh, it might make things slightly better, but you really get the benefit when you do all of them. That makes sense. If anyone yeah. has the answer to Steve's question, please do let us know. <laughs> now, that would be great. I would love to hear it. Getting back to the technical depth and, and combining that with uh, uh, with Kanban, it's hard to really stay in your development flow if you want to be able to eradicate your technical depth as well, as well. Till what extent do you consider technical depth to be at a healthy level? Oh, I wish there was a nice, easy answer to that. Um, but it's going to be so dependent on the state of your product, right? Uh, if you've got a very mature product, then you would hope at that point your level of technical debt's relatively low because the product's not changing that often. Any decision that you might have made in the past that you were trading off getting feedback um, for um, cutting a corner, for lack of a better term, um, that you those decisions have already been made and are behind you. So the state of the product, um, the level of knowledge, skill, understanding of the people working on it is going to be very different. And that will, um, uh, inter- it will impact your ability to manage the debt. Uh, so you should be thinking about these, what are the skill of my people? What's the state of my product? Um, what's my customer base like? Uh, all of those things should play into how much debt you're willing to take on. Uh, quick rule of thumb for a product owner. If you're having sleepless nights about the technical future of your product, you probably have too much debt. Right? If you're worried about what happens if then that should be a trigger for you to say, okay, what can, what do I need to work on in the next sprint? What do I need to work, work on in the future so I can sleep better at night? Uh, and if, if you, uh, and I should extend that beyond the product owner, 
um, because a lot of there there's the risk that these the technical decisions that you made um, as a product owner you may not understand the impact hopefully you do but you may not understand the impact the same way that the people who actually build the product here's an interesting exercise for any product owners out there go to your development team go to your developers and say hey what keeps you up at night hey are there any parts of the system that no one wants to touch and see their response and if they're sleeping well at night that's a, that's not a bad sign i really have to think that through i'm really curious about the response that in practice people will get i think it's a really really cool question one of the things it's it is a really good question um again the, there's lots of it depends there you will have had to create an environment where people feel safe to say i'm i'm uncomfortable with this um engineers in in my experience uh and uh, there uh, there are other people here who won't share this experience and that's okay but in my experience um the engineers i've worked with have a very high desire to produce high quality code and may not feel comfortable with the vulnerability of saying we didn't do this as well as we thought we could have they may not want to admit that um if you're a professional and i'm hoping all the people who listen to this they consider themselves a professional it's tough as a professional to have that vulnerability of saying i didn't do this as well as i would have liked maybe you've learned more like there's lots of there's lots of really good reasons why things aren't as uh high quality and aren't done the way you would like to do them so it's okay if someone approaches you and said what would what keeps you up at night what what areas are you uncomfortable with it's okay to say and to be truthful and honest say this area this particular piece i wish we could have done this better getting back to the humanity and the workflow i like that absolutely absolutely uh you need to if you don't create that environment where people are comfortable with admitting mistakes and looking for opportunities to improve then this whole idea of continuous improvement just kind of goes out the window uh people do kind of and continuous improvement continuous improvement is such an important part of agility and such an important part of scrum it's one of the reasons the framework work exists and i often remind people that if you really truly believe in continuous improvement what you have to also believe is we're always doing things wrong everything we do is wrong we just haven't discovered how they're wrong yet or how wrong they are because if you don't acknowledge that everything we're doing is wrong or could be improved is another way of saying wrong wrong is a lot harsher it's easier to say could be improved but i like to say people i like to tell people everything you're doing could be improved and if people aren't willing to accept that then it's hard to embrace this continuous improvement mindset now picture a sprint review where you have a lot of senior level stakeholders or even c level directors being there and you're going to say Yeah, basically everything that we're doing is probably wrong but we're trying to figure out what's right and they're like mark mark the manager is over there and he says <laughs> is it what is this what i'm spending my money on what the hell is this 
How do you yeah. convince people of this mindset? Um, uh, I'm not going to, uh, the, here's the, the things to trigger on, right? Um, we will, when we find things that are wrong, we will fix them right away. And we're going to try to not spend any effort doing things that don't help make us better. Um, this Facebook, Facebook gets beaten up a lot lately. And, uh, one of the terms they always use is move, uh, move fast, break things. I think that's the term. If I've got it slightly wrong, maybe one of your listeners will fix, will, will fix that. But it's that agile mind fast, agile mindset, move fast, break things. I just wish they would have added to the end of that. Move fast, break things, move fast, fix things. That's the agile mindset. So for the, the manager saying, it's like, well, you're doing all the things that are crappy. It's like, everyone's doing everything crappy. It's not just us. We're working in an environment where everything is new. We, we, haven't, we haven't done this before. Um, in most environments where Scrum is being practiced, um, it's not manufacturing. It's not as if you've got a factory turning out widgets. We're doing something brand new. So there are always going to be opportunities to find out how to do it better. I just want to be truthful and honest and direct with the people I'm working with saying, we, when we do find these issues, we're going to fix them right away. And here's the, the upside for you. When you come to us, so we're trying to fix our own things. We're going to do it really fast. When you come to us from a business perspective and say, hey, I want this, we're already really good at doing things quickly because we do it internally. Hey, we find mistakes, we fix them right away. Is when the business comes to us and said, hey, we've, we found a business problem, then we should, the teams you're working with just go, it's like, you've, you've found a problem. Excellent. We love fixing problems. Bring it to us and we'll fix it fast. That sounds perfect, man. That's a great advice. And definitely yeah. something that I've deal, dealt with myself multiple times. Now, speaking of the, sticking with the sprint review, do you make the technical depth that you have worked on, do you make that visible during a sprint review? Let's say we have a lot of technical depth. The sprint has been basically revolving around this eradication of technical depth, and we have provided little actual new value to the stakeholders. Do we yeah. share this? Well, I would. Well, I would hope so. I think I talked a little bit earlier about capturing the work that you need to do to recover from a decision you've made earlier to get faster feedback, right? Um, if, if you've been capturing that information in the product backlog, then as a product owner, having discussions with the stakeholders about what's in the product backlog you might want to work on next sprint or what was in the product backlog that we're working on this sprint, it should at that point just become work. Um, if as a product owner, you're talking about fixing technical debt, maybe you need to find slightly different words to talk to your stakeholders about the value that you're bringing. And for me, um, working on, working on technical debt, um, is, is about mitigating risk. Hopefully your stakeholders are happy that you've identified a risk and that you're spending, you're investing some of your time in mitigating that risk. Um, another bit of language you might consider using, I've co-opted this language a couple of times is insurance. 
um, hopefully our listeners know what insurance is, right? And and many people, they don't like paying insurance, right? And if if everything is right in the world, every dollar you spend on insurance, you never you never get back. You never see again, right? You're best paying to mitigate some risk in the future. Um, paying back technical debt, view it as insurance. And even though people don't like paying insurance, I think most of your stakeholders, most of your, and certainly most of your listeners, understand the concept of I'm putting this money aside and I'm doing this to mitigate some future risk that I'm hoping doesn't happen, but if it does, I'm covered. Paying back technical debt, technical debt can be seen in, in, in exactly the same way. Now, um, product owners and businesses should be aware is you can buy too much insurance. You absolutely can. Um, if, if your uh, yearly premium is $10,000 and if the premium is covering off something bad that happens that when it happens – it costs you $10, that's bad insurance, right? So you should look at the cost of paying off technical debt the same way. Am I investing, you know, thousands of dollars to pay off some technical debt that I think the risk of it actually happening is a, is a, is a smaller cost? Obviously, one of the challenges you have with technical debt, like any time when you're forecasting the future, is it's hard to forecast the risk. You might think it's only going to be $10 or $100 or 10 hours or whatever the hours may be when this thing actually happens. Um, or you might miss your forecast and it's a much higher cost. And in that case, paying off the technical debt, doing that insurance piece is nice because then you don't have to worry about the risk. It's taken care of it and it's done. So you want to stay constantly mindful of this. Steve, yes. thank you very much. Uh, I want to ask you one last question. I think this has been very sure. useful so far. At least I learned a ton. I hope I hope our listeners will too. Um, right. Is there any blog or movie or whatever you've ever seen or read that really changed your perspective on anything? Um, always, I got to plug the scrum.org blog, our PST blog is great, full of really good stuff there. So um, going over to uh, www.scrum.org, uh, looking at community blogs is, is awesome. Um, I've got a handful there, uh, just a small smattering of the brilliance that the professional Scrum trainer community has been able to produce. So that's one area. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, if people are looking for something that might kind of expand their mind a little bit, uh, I'm reading a book right now called The End of Email. Uh, by Cal Newport. Um, and it's the, the book's got two parts to it. The first part is um, a whole bunch of almost science and research around how bad email is, which I kind of, I, I went through that part of the book fairly quickly because I already know how bad email is. I didn't need to be convinced how bad email is. I know it's bad. Um, the second half of the book is how to fix it. And I there were some really great ideas in there around how to fix email now that we're in this this really this new virtual environment with a lot more knowledge work we're we're post industrial like we're we're 
there are obviously still people working in factories and doing the industrial age work, but the people doing that becomes less and less and less. And the people doing knowledge work are becoming more and more and more. And email is, uh, this industrial mindset idea imposed on post-industrial people. And they have a whole bunch of suggestions in the book around now that we're post-industrial, what can we do to deal with the transfer of information from person to person that is done in such a way that doesn't just grind everything to a halt. So that's the book I would recommend to your listeners. Really interesting. And I'm hoping my levels yeah. of email will go down when I can finally go back to the office once this COVID <laughs> thing is uh, relatively done. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Steve Porter, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, to the listeners, thank you very much for listening. Um, you can find me in my blog at scrum.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter, Steve VR Porter. If you have any questions or want to reach out, please feel free to do so. I'll link those in the show notes. Everyone, you can find them there. Thanks. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then... <laughs>